Who was Jack the Ripper? For over a century, people have obsessed over this question. And this week, we are here to solve it. (laughs) Just kidding. But (laughs) we will give it our best shot. Last week, we discussed the canonical five victims. This week, we are here to discuss the assailant. We'll overview what we know, then go over some prominent suspects, and end by each stumping for a major contender. And there are some major contenders. I think I'm right. Dancy thinks she's right. I do. And we'll see who you agree with. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factinate.com. I'm Veronica. I'm Dancy. And this season of the show is all about historical true crime. We are exploring history's dark side through courtroom dramas, executions, disappearances, mysterious deaths, and much, much more. This week, we're talking about history's most famous serial killer, Jack the Ripper. And we're going to start with kind of the general descriptions we got of that suspect, um, ideas about Jack the Ripper, partly from the Victorian age when he was living, and then also what we've learned about serial killers today and project that back on to Jack. So obviously, the Victorian era didn't have a behavioral analysis unit. Uh, The idea of a serial killer was really just something that Jack brought into the public consciousness. There were serial Mm. killers before him, but this was really when people started to think about killing as a pathology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this was just becoming nascent, the idea that a serial killer could be different from a crime of passion, uh, from a a person who just sort of happened to kill someone. And they didn't really understand it that well uh, back then. But now, of course, we do a little bit more. So we can use his crimes and the aspects of them that we know of to kind of build his profile, so to speak. Yeah, we're like going to retcon criminal minds in their many, many seasons right back onto the Victorian era. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll just note, though, I don't think this can ever be like bang on. Um, I always remember there were a lot of theories about the Golden State Killer and what he was like and what what his home life would have been like. And like they were kind of completely different than when they actually found Joseph James D'Angelo. So, you know, take these all with a a grain of salt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's start with eyewitness accounts. Again, also notoriously unreliable, so grain of salt needed, but we have actually kind of a lot of them, and they have some commonalities, some really strong commonalities that have let people say, like, okay, this is probably kind of what this guy looked like. So he probably had dark hair and a dark mustache. That's the first sign he's evil. It's the villain mustache. Yes, of course. And he twirled it a lot. Um. He also wasn't that tall, at least by our standards. He was probably around 5'5". Yeah, he's only a little bit taller than the women he kills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the age is kind of the murkiest one that I came across. Um, Scotland Yard put out a more modern profile, and they said he was 25 to 35. Uh, but a lot of accounts that I read actually said he could have been 30s, 40s. And I think, too, like, obviously this was happening at the apex of this killer's bloodthirst. So I don't think he'd be too, too old, right? Because killing desires hit people around their their mid-20s, at least as far as I know. Oh, I didn't know that. But that's very interesting. Or like you, sorry, you build build up to it, right? Um, But like a 50-year-old man, unless he had some maybe psychotic break, um, it'd be unlikely that it would have taken him that long to start these killings. Okay, okay. Jack had a stout build, Tons of people say he was stout. 
And um, a lot of people, a lot of eyewitnesses said he was somewhat respectable, respectably dressed. Again, we had that shabby genteel description. And another eyewitness said he wasn't what I should call a working man. So that's kind of the vibe of whoever this man was. Now, when we think about who he was as a killer, he's pretty much your classic disorganized opportunistic killer. There's an FBI profile from 1988 that they did on him at the 100-year anniversary of the killings, and they called him a lust killer. They predicted that he probably hated his mother and that his mother may have actually been a sex worker and that he was acting out fantasies against her. That was sort of what the FBI, FBI profile posited. Mommy issues, classic. And one of the really famous theories about Jack the Ripper is that he may have had medical experience, right? Or else been a butcher. He often killed women with a clasp knife, which is a kind Ugh. of butcher knife or a knife many butchers would have had. However, some people say that the wounds were so crude that yeah, it could have yeah. been anyone. So very divided opinion on that. And then the final kind of thing about him is that he may have been a cannibal. Hello, Clary. I mentioned this briefly in the first episode that there's a theory that he may have eaten Mary Jane Kelly's heart. <laughs> but more than that, in October 1888, just weeks before the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee received the infamous From Hell letter. Now, the police and lots of people around the police were receiving tons of hoax letters at the time. But the From Hell letter, of all of them, this one could be a genuine one. It was sent with half a kidney. And note, Catherine Eddowes was missing a kidney. And I'm going to read this out like they're actually words, but this is riddled with spelling mistakes. So it starts, From Hell, Mr. Lusk, Sir, or I guess it's Sir, isn't it? It's supposed it? to be Sir, yeah. Yeah, I was like, what is Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for... You, other piece, I fried and ate it, was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Ugh! Creepy! So creepy! So yeah, maybe he was a cannibal too. Great. As though it needed to be worse. He's really yeah, just covering yeah. all his bases. All right, so from these kind of details, these eyewitness accounts... People have drawn some general theories about the killer that aren't necessarily related to any one suspect, which we'll get to, but just general ideas. Mm -hmm. An FBI profiler believes that the Ripper committed crimes other than the canonical five. And I, I do as well. I think many people mm -hmm. do. Um, when he hit Marianne Nichols, a.k.a. Polly, the first victim. Yes, we've got a developed style on our hands already. And there are unconfirmed but possible previous victims. People like 38-year-old Annie Millwood, um, who went to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary sporting stab wounds around her legs and lower torso in February 1888, so months mm. before Polly's murder. Um, she actually survived those but then died of natural causes quite soon after, so kind of a dead end there. Yeah, you couldn't ask her yeah. anything about who did it. Okay. On March 28th, a woman named Ada Wilson was stabbed in the neck twice on her doorstep. So again, these are maybe someone beginning to test out the waters. Mm -hmm. The other kind of interesting thing about these murders um, that leads to some of the general theories about who the suspects might be is that the murders seem to stop. Some people claim they stop 
right after Mary Jane Kelly. But in 1891, at the latest, the Whitechapel murder stopped because there was a spate of other killings that happened all the way through into 1891 uh, in Whitechapel with the murder of a one Francis Coles. There is also, and put a pin in this, there's also one murder in April 1891 in New York City in America. It's a murder of a woman named Carrie Brown. And some people rule this out, some people don't. But these American killings have also led to interesting theories. Uh, could the Ripper have moved stateside? And that's why the Whitechapel mm-hmm. murders stopped. I mean, some people even think that the notorious serial killer H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. But no, like some people think, okay, after 1891, did Jack the Ripper die? Ooh, so th- yep, yep. this all leads to parts of the narrowing down of suspects. I also want to introduce the thought that there could be a second man. Now, this seems ridiculous, and most people do discount it. But the really interesting thing is, there was a Hungarian Jewish man named Israel Schwartz, who was probably the only person to witness the early stages of a Ripper murder. He was walking down a back street and swore he saw a man pulling Elizabeth Stride to the ground. However, Schwartz also says that that assailant, when he was pushing Elizabeth Stride down, called to another man, Lipsky, and then that man started to walk towards Schwartz, who then ran away because he was afraid and in a panic. The weird thing is, police, like, very soon after just crossed this guy off the list. They didn't really end up looking into, like, a duo theory. Um, They didn't end up really looking into this Lipsky guy. Or if they did, they cleared him. And no one knows how or why, what the circumstances of that were. Which brings us to my last and final theory, which is the conspiracy from the top. And this is this idea that the Ripper was someone in high society who police were trying to protect. Hashtag defund. (laughs) Hashtag defund. Defund the police. Then and now, baby. (laughs) Maybe this second man was a higher up that no one, you know, no one wanted to go after. Um, And I am always fascinated with conspiracy theories because they almost always show that people can tell the system is stacked against them. And it is. And that it's corrupt. And it is. But the end result of that fear always tends to be like this wacky solution. Um, It's like it goes in a strange direction. But people are wrong that the system is totally messed up and against them. So that's, those are the general theories. That's the general profile of Jack the Ripper. But of course, these can only take us so far. So let's get into some names, people. Oh, and I have such spicy, spicy drama for you. I know that our previous episode was very heavy, so I wanted some levity here. So I have to tell you, our dear listeners, that there is an incredible conspiracy theory about who Jack the Ripper is. I think Dancy and I are both like a little obsessed with I love with this. this I love this so much. <laughs> the theory is yeah. that Prince Albert Victor was Jack the Ripper. Prince Albert Victor was Queen Victoria's bad boy bisexual grandson. (laughs) He got tied up in a male brothel scandal. Some people say that the Prince Albert piercing, you know, when men pierce the head of their penis, that that's named for him. Oh, yeah. He just had a very spicy reputation. And people just think it's him because he had this reputation, even though he wasn't even in London when some of the murders took place. Like, this is not a real theory. Yeah, like, no, 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 no way. But it's too good not to share. Um, 
There's this book in the yeah. 1970s that came up with a completely disproven but still very exciting theory that says that Mary Jane Kelly, the final victim, banded up with the other victims to blackmail the royal family because Mary Jane had apparently seen Prince Albert Victor secretly marrying a Catholic woman. So instead of, you know, paying them off or doing anything reasonable, the royal family decides to gruesomely kill all these women to shut them up because this isn't like batshit enough. The theory also says that Albert has an illegitimate child. Like, I just, I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't have time to go into everyone, Mm -hmm. but other suspects that aren't credible include Carl Fiegenbaum and Thomas Cutbush. Uh, The two that I'm going to focus on come from, well, it's a fun name, the McNaughton Notes. And these are the notes from Chief Constable McNaughton, Mm. who identified three main suspects in 1894. And Chief Constable McNaughton investigated the crimes. So not a bad source. Okay. Our first suspect is Montague John Druitt. Here is what the McNaughton note says about him. A Mr. M.J. Druitt, said to be a doctor and of good family, who disappeared at the time of the Miller's Court murder, and whose body, which was said to have been upwards of a month in the water, was found in the Thames on December 31st. He was sexually insane, and from private information, Mm. I have little doubt that his own family believed him to have been the murderer. Sexually insane. You and me, bud. Yes. (laughs) Did you notice anything fun about that um, write-up? Sexually insane. (laughs) But also the fact that it actually has no facts. Oh, yes. That too. Somebody told me it was him, and so it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's how police work's done, people. (laughs) We don't know if any of this is true. Uh, We do know that Montague John Druitt did receive medical training, which, as Dancy said, some people think the Ripper had. We know that mental illness ran in his family. Uh, Oh, my God. This guy's family life is so sad. Uh, After his father died, his mom went insane and was put in an asylum. His mom and his grandmother both attempted suicide. Oh, and his sister jumped off a building. Like, yeah, it's not great. And, I mean, I think the biggest piece of evidence towards Druitt being Jack the Ripper is that he dies very soon after the Mary Jane Kelly Mm -hmm. murder, which would explain why the murder stops so suddenly. But again, like, this is why I don't buy him. Because, yes, if you believe that Kelly was the last victim, then it makes sense. But there were, Mm -hmm. like, 11 Whitechapel murders in total. And, yes, some of them, probably not the Ripper. But, like, it's still, like, iffy ground to build a case on if you saying that Kelly was the last one. She's the last canonical one, for sure. And also, again, this man had lots of struggles. He drowned himself. But there is no record of violent behavior. The biggest piece of evidence against him is that we have a guy saying that another guy thought he did it, which is not evidence. (laughs) Like, it's just not. Would not hold up in a court of law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's just put Druitt away. Put him in a door. The second big suspect is Michael Ostrog. Here is what the McNaughton papers say about him. Ahem. Michael Ostrog, a mad Russian doctor and a convict and unquestionably a homicidal maniac. This man was said to have been habitually cruel to women and for a long time was known to have carried about with him surgical knives and other instruments. 
His antecedents were of the very worst, and his whereabouts at the time of the Whitechapel murders could never be satisfactorily accounted for. Mm-hmm. He is still alive. Dun, dun, okay, dun. it's definitely him. It's definitely him. I gotta, has to be him, right? Yeah. From those notes, <laughs> gotta be him. I mean, the notes sound really good. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit more about this man. Here's who he really was. He was a Russian scammer and a thief. He lived under lots of assumed names, including saying he was the son of the King of Poland. (laughs) Oh, wow. I know. He was in and out of jail. He got transferred to a lunatic asylum in the 1880s. He was just definitely on law enforcement's mind during the Ripper spree. He was a career criminal. And Mm -hmm. actually, during the spree, law enforcement was specifically looking for anyone who had recently been released from a lunatic asylum. So that's why Michael Ostrog came to the top of their minds. I think that is actually pretty telling about Victorian approaches to mental illness, Mm -hmm. that they think, okay, well, this person would have to be in a lunatic asylum. And, you know, maybe Jack the Ripper was, but, you know, so many sociopaths and psychopaths in particular, like, they don't present as insane. And they wouldn't necessarily be in an asylum, right? And like Jack had to be sane seeming enough to get these women to Mm -hmm. agree to do business with him. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not convinced it's Michael Ostrog. And I have two very simple reasons. First, we have no actual record that he was cruel to women. But more importantly, like his appearance just doesn't match up. He would have been in his mid 50s minimum during the murders. And he was very tall, much taller than any witness accounts. So it just doesn't hang together for me. No, I agree it doesn't. But the thing is, the next guy I'm going to talk about, Mm -hmm. this got some holes. But this guy, who especially, there is a bombshell of a revelation at the end of this that, like, this is what convinced me. So... The next suspect is Aaron Kosminski, and this is the third suspect that McNaughton mentioned um, as like his top three. So Kosminski emigrated to London from Poland via Germany around 1881 or 1882. He was in London. He was in Whitechapel. He worked as a barber there, probably Mm -hmm. only sporadically, but he was there as a barber throughout the murders. And actually, just wanted to mention for context, one thing we didn't say last time when we were talking about um, Whitechapel in the area was that it had a lot of Jewish refugees who were fleeing discrimination um, and death from Tsarist Russia at the time. And that's also mm. partly why we get Israel Schwartz, the Hungarian uh, Jewish man. Um, they had a very high Jewish population. Now, Kosminski, like many of the suspects on McNaughton's list, was mentally ill. Um, His sisters took care of him, but it worsened over the years, and he had auditory hallucinations. Um, He was also paranoid of other people feeding him, and he would often dumpster dive because of this. I've heard about this. He was, like, obsessed with drinking out of gutters. Mm Mm-hmm. Not great. Yeah. He also refused to wash or bathe um, for similar paranoid reasons. And, of course, partly because of this, he was often very, very skinny and emaciated because he was malnourished. Oof. In 1891, he was institutionalized after threatening a woman, either his sister or someone else's sister, with a knife. So, profession as a barber, kind of razor blady, kind of knifey, very Sweeney Todd. His location, very close to the murders. The timing of it all, getting put away in 1891, and then the murders stop. Mm, yeah, that checks out too. So, this guy. <laughs> Ding, 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 like pretty big red flags are going up at this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, it's still not a slam dunk. 
He was only actually identified from the McNaughton notes a hundred years later because McNaughton only gave his last name, Kosminski, and we so we didn't know. And some details don't line up exactly minor ones, but some people argue that it's actually a case of mistaken identity and that the Aaron Kosminski that we found out through asylum records is not the same person that McNaughton was talking about. Some people argue mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. McNaughton also claimed that his Kosminski, quote, had a great hatred of women and had strong homicidal tendencies. You you know, he just basically makes the same accusation. (laughs) Hey, I mean, if the shoe fits. Uh, Yeah. However, the Kosminski that we can track was quiet and solitary in the asylum. He did threaten the woman with a knife that did happen to put him in the asylum. um, But during his time there, all he ever did was brandish a chair at a woman. And... Also, he was emaciated more often than not. He was not stout. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really fit the physical description. And another thing that I think really can't be ignored is like there was a huge amount of discrimination against Jewish people at the time. And Kosminski was Jewish. And there's untold depths of how that might have affected him being targeted. Now, that's all true. Those are the holes. There's like some things don't add up with him. We can't be fully sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But and this is a huge but. I know, it's so exciting. This is recent news. So recent. There is compelling DNA evidence that puts Kosminski back in. In 2014, DNA evidence of a shawl that Catherine Eddowes, the fourth canonical victim, was supposed to have left on the scene came to light. This guy bought the shawl at auction and he had it analyzed for mitochondrial DNA. And the results showed that it had Catherine Eddowes' DNA on it and Kosminski's. Whoa! Like, this is 2014. We're getting some kind of proof that Catherine Eddowes, Aaron Kosminski were in the same place together Mm -hmm. on the square where she died. Now, some people doubted this. For one, the findings were published in the Daily Mail, which is a tablet. Yeah, um, it's not got a great reputation in Britain where it no, is published. No. <laughs> this is not the Washington Post. <laughs> People thought that the shawl might not have been Edo's to begin with. They also talked about DNA being transferred from somewhere else accidentally, which, like, fair. However, I mean, I think it is compelling. The other thing about it is that in 2019, so a couple of years after and very, very recently, a peer-reviewed article in an independent journal, the Journal of Forensic Sciences. Not the Daily Mail. So, you know, not the Daily Mail. <laughs> um, semi-backed up that mm-hmm. claim. Now, there is a bunch of like scientific mumbo jumbo that I'm not really going to go into, but they like, they leave room that like, maybe there is some doubt here, but like, yes, as far as we can tell, the 2014 evidence like checks yeah, out. Yeah, it's compelling. It's very, it's very compelling. Exciting. But fair listener, before you veer onto Dancy's side, <laughs> you know, just let me make my case because we do have one more option. George Chapman. He was a Polish multiple murderer. He was born Severin Klausowski in 1865, so he was 23 at the time of the murders, which would work with some of the witness accounts. He worked as an assistant surgeon, so again, this man knew how to cut up a body. He moved to London in 1887. 
He worked in Whitechapel as a barber in 1888, so he's in the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. He regularly carried a black bag, like some witnesses say Jack the Ripper carried. He also had a fantastic mustache. And (laughs) this is what I think is wild. He went to New York in 1891 after he and his wife, also a Polish immigrant, lost their infant son. He was in New York at the same time as Carrie Brown, who some people think is an unofficial victim of the Ripper, right at the exact same time that she was murdered. Hmm. But that could just mean he killed Carrie Brown. Well, but wait. Here's just more about this guy. He is such bad news. I think one thing that holds me back from Aaron Kosminski is that his mental illness really didn't seem to manifest in violence or sexual violence. This guy, though. Okay. So him and his wife are in New York. He attacks his wife with a knife. So she's like, nope, I'm out. So she goes back to London without him. He follows her, but they live apart. And he, (laughs) classic male behavior, he tries to get a thruple going. (laughs) But one of the girls walks out. Good call. Maybe because George Chapman was a piece of work. Check this out. Eventually, George marries. I mean, not really, but they live as man and wife because he's still married to his actual wife. He marries, effectively, a woman named Mary Spink. A neighbor says that he beat her and that Mary had bruises on her constantly. And then George starts poisoning Mary with tartar emetic, which contains antimony. Mary (gasps) wastes away and dies. Oh, my God. I know. And, And like the level of cruelty and sadism to watch someone die slowly. I just think that yeah. tells you so much about this man's psychology. Yep. And it gets worse um, because he marries, you know, in quotes, another woman, Bessie Taylor, and does the whole thing again. And then he shacks up with a woman named Maud Marsh, who's only 18. And he does it again. Like he's a homicidal maniac. Okay. Okay. But can I just say, go on poisoning very different mo very true very true i believe this man is a killer and i believe he could be he could have killed people we don't know about but it's so different from the slash it's so different psychologically so different yes it's very different as a criminal profile um however i would just say that of the suspects he is the only one to have an actual record of cruel violent murderous behavior towards women and also he does threaten his actual wife with a knife and one of his other live-in girlfriends she told one of her friends in a moment when she was away from george you don't know who he is so that kind of makes me wonder you know maybe there's just more there oh and i did want to mention that not only did this man watch three innocent women die He did not kill them because he had to. He was not married to them. He could have just left them. He didn't even get money by killing them. He just watched them die slowly. That's just another level of evil. It is so premeditated. It's so unnecessary. Like, yeah, he's a bad man. I think the general personality works. I think the timeline works. He's in London when the five die. Then he's in New York when another sex worker dies in a very similar crime. His appearance Mm -hmm. works. He's not too tall. He wears the right clothes. He hates women. (laughs) He has, like, some surgical knowledge. But like Dancy said for hers, I mean, there are holes. Poisoning is very different from slashing someone up with a knife Also, why does he stop the murders for five weeks in between the fourth victim and Mary Jane Kelly? 
And most importantly, he is Polish. He moves to London and the crimes take place a year after he moves there. Would his English have been good enough? Would he have spoken without an accent? You know, because there is a witness account that says they hear him say, will you? Yes. I feel like he would have to be able to talk to them and like maybe he, mm-hmm. this guy wrote letters. Like th- there's some facility with English, at least a little bit. Yeah, exactly. There are knocks against him, just to be clear. But that is who I think did it. And it's also who um, Philip Sugden, who wrote a really great book on Jack the Ripper, thinks it was. And I think, I mean, he just made a really good case. I was convinced. I mean, it is a good case. Like this guy, he is a murderer. He also kind of satisfies that I think that desire we want to have it make sense, like, mm-hmm. say it is Aaron Kosminski. Well, then we have to be like, oh, God, I, we don't really know him. We don't really know mm. anyone. He's he's sort of this this sad kind of pathetic figure, and his his mental illness is isn't violent. Mm-mm. But if it was him, then there must have been an entire other side to him we have no access to. Mm-hmm. With Chapman, you don't get that. You think, well, there it is. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like he's really he's really leading with he's a piece of shit from the get-go. Yes. And I think we can only ever be kind of inconclusive about it, even with DNA evidence. I mean, but this also brings up the idea for me that like, do any of us really want to know who Jack the Ripper is for sure? When the DNA for Kosminski was published, the guy was like, and now the age old question is done. There can be no more discussion on this. And like, he's, you know, just grandstanding, which to be fair, I would do too. Oh, but God, like yeah. my reaction is like, oh, okay. It's sort of this like, oh, oh I guess. So, you know, like, I don't know. Do we really, do we want the mystery to continue or do we really want to know? I think you're onto it. I also think that the mystery is a huge part of why we continue to talk about Jack the Ripper. If we knew who he was, I mean, compare him to H.H. Holmes. We know who Mm -hmm. H.H. Holmes was. His crimes are so gruesome. Mm -hmm. But because we know it's him beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's just less to wonder about. It doesn't have that like cloaked in dusky corners kind of aesthetic appeal. We love a mystery. And, you know, there's no upside to finding him now, really. If we had, well, he was alive, he could have been brought to justice. The victims could have gotten closure. But now it wouldn't mean anything. No, I mean, what would you do about it? We'd know, which would be satisfying in its own way. But also, no matter who it is, won't it be underwhelming? Like, because Jack the Ripper is barely human anymore. He is such a legend. And I think if we could find beyond a shadow of a doubt whoever this person was, there's a sense that it's going to all click. Mm -hmm. But I'm positive that whoever it was has been, like, on someone's list somewhere. Like, possibly it's not in this. Possibly it's someone that's, like, very left field. It's Albert Victor. (laughs) (laughs) And there would always be holes we, you'd always have this moment of like, well, but that, and but that, but that, because it's not a TV show where it all falls into place. It's not an Agatha Christie novel where you go, oh, yes, of course. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. better to have the mystery then, you know? Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factnate.com. If you want to see Veronica's history memes on social media, give us a follow on Instagram, which is at Yesterday's News Podcast, or Twitter, which is at Factnate Pod. You can get in touch by emailing us at Yesterday's News at Factnate.com. We'll be back next week with another historical crime to dissect. A new one, actually. We're done with Jack the Ripper and on to the next. Hi, Jack. <laughs> Boy, bye. 
Until then, don't let the bland textbooks fool you. History was the original true crime documentary.